Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and I'm really thrilled today to be joined by Christy Hunter R. Scott. She's an award-winning advisor, speaker, and author of the book, Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and Launch a Brilliant Career. She's a Rhodes Scholar, so she's, you know, pretty smart. You know, just let guys know that up front. And she's a Rhodes Scholar, and her book was actually just picked to be, uh, to be part of the celebration of the 120th anniversary of the Rhodes Trust. And among her many achievements, Christy has also been named by Thinkers 50 as one of the top management thinkers likely to shape the future of business. Christy, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Well, we're happy you're here. We're excited too. And as I talked to you a little bit off camera before we began recording, I think your work is really important, not just for women, but also for allies of women and people who really want to understand the plight of women, whether it be in business or social constructs. I mean, your work covers a lot. So to begin, as a pun, I guess, because your book has the word begin in it, but, but your book, Begin Boldly, it emphasizes the idea of reimagining risk and embracing uncertainty, as I just mentioned in the intro. So what inspired you to focus on specifically empowering women in that regard and helping them navigate these challenges in their careers versus like an overall uh, messaging for, you know, everyone? This is very women specific. Yeah, no, great question. And I will tell you to start off that although this was based on gender research and work, that it's been amazing how many men have picked up my book and actually said, these tools are completely applicable to me as well. Mm. Um, But the reason why I wrote it for for women specifically is in risk-taking, there's been studies that have been done. And a simple example of it is that well-known study that says men are likely to apply for a role when they're 60% qualified or Mm. meeting what the requirements are. And for women, they wait until they're 100% or 100 plus until they're overachieving of what the requirements are. And that study, amongst so many others, told me that there's a gap that women need to close actually more than men. So how do we actually create a custom toolkit to help women get their head around risk-taking? The other thing is that The world reacts differently to women than men. That's just the reality. And so when risks go wrong, which failure is part of risk-taking, women might have a different response from people. And so we have to create more supports embedded into the system and gender intelligent tools to deal with that. So it's not saying go out there and jump off a cliff and everyone should do that. It's saying you know, when you do this, this is how you prepare. And this is how you prepare for what might happen on the back end as well. Mm. 
I've spoken to a lot of women on the show, uh, very successful women from CEOs to like really historically groundbreaking people like uh, Kara Golden, for example, who I would say is historic because she invented hint water, which, uh, you know, it's so hard to penetrate like the beverage market. You know, it's either PepsiCo yes. or like the, the fact that she's a mom who invented this like multi-million dollar brand in her kitchen just because she didn't want her kids to drink sugar water. So she just put some fruit in the water. And said, I'm going to go and like disrupt the, <laughs> the industry, the billion amazing. dollar industry. It's really an amazing story. But you know, when, when I hear you talk about what you just what, what you just said, it's it reminds me of my conversation with her because in her early days of trying to get capital, she'd be meeting with men who she was trying to get business yeah. money from, and they'd say things like, "Oh, uh, gosh, you know, where are the you, you have three kids? Where are the kids today? How'd you how'd you pull that off?" And she's like. Yeah, there's a thing called a babysitter. You might have heard of it. Like, I don't, I'm not sure why this is a miracle to you. But, you know, she told me that story of a guy who said that to her. And he immediately realized when she kind of made the babysitter joke of how much of a mistake he had made. So to this day, she tells the story and she says that he's a friend of hers now. And he, he as a man goes out now and tells that story as a cautionary tale to other men. So I just, you know, so what you just said is exactly right. That's amazing. I mean, and the reality is that I have heard thousands of stories like that and not someone potentially that's gone on to, you know, launch an amazing disruptive (laughs) water brand. Right. But it's so interesting, the biases that exist and those questions that come up. And so Even in the sense that I remember having a friend applying for a role and someone said, well, how are you going to balance this and this? And she was like, my husband would never be asked that same question. And so that, that onus of like thinking about how we answer those things exists on us sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I wish, like I say at the beginning of the book, like, I wish I could change society. But while we're waiting for organizations and society to change, like we have to equip ourselves to deal with these conversations, to deal with these kind of barriers in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating because, and I don't want to turn this into like a man bashing session because, you know, I'm kind kind of a guy myself. (laughs) But uh, but there are all those examples because uh, another one I heard from a woman who was a CEO, um, a former CEO of a really big brand, she was like... um, I remember needing to leave to go take my kids to an early soccer practice or one of those things that moms need to do. And, um, you know, she said she got grief for it. She sort of got this scoff, you know, of like, well, you know, are you not equipped for the job? You know, you have to make a decision here. Is it your kid's soccer game or is it the job? And then in the same token, like someone in that same job, like a father had to leave early to take his kids to a doctor's appointment. And they're like, isn't Kevin a great dad? He's leaving early to take his kid to the- <laughs> Yeah. She's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, and totally. he gets praised for doing like a basic parental thing and the woman might mm-hmm. get scorned. So. Yeah, that happens. And one thing though, to call out, because you're right, this is not a man bashing session by any <laughs> sense. The reality is we as women have those biases as well. So, mm. you know, there have been studies done around like women's biases for who makes a leader, a CEO, a head of an orchestra. And a lot of those things exist for us too. And we're more likely to push a woman on how are you going to balance this? What are you going to do with family than we are for our male counterparts? And there's been many studies that show that as well. So mm. it's, it's it's embedded in our society across genders. And so yeah. we have to be really smart around how we navigate that. 
Yeah, and I've heard um, some women talk about the Disney uh, syndrome. One, I, I love this author named Alisa Basist, who I had in the show, and she talks about like women are sort of programmed from the beginning uh, when they're young of this sort of like Disney thing of like you know the the man has to complete you, the man's going to save you, you're the <laughs> yeah. damsel in distress. You have to like put your braid out of a window for him to climb up. And she's like, well, wait a minute, why don't you just tie your braid to something and climb down your own braid? Like, how about that? So um, yeah, I just think it's a programming thing. And I love that, you know, you're addressing that it's not necessarily women, it's societal, um, the the almost impossible things that are put onto women um, mm-hmm. to succeed, but then also be the nurturer, be the caregiver, but then get reprimanded for being those things. It's like this really vicious cycle when you think about it. Yeah, um, it's incredibly complex and so difficult. So Um, Within the U.S., recent studies have shown like even where women take on the majority of the income earning in a family, they're either the sole income earner or the highest income earner in a married couple, that they're still more likely to take on the majority of the housework and child care. And so Mm. these gender norms create conflicts and tensions for women in so many different ways. And then the trade-offs in terms of their career are, are greater. And so I keep on thinking about like, how do we create kind of the tools and equip women to navigate these conflicts, these tensions, these challenges, while we're hopefully in parallel changing organizations, policies, society as well. Right. And I love in the beginning, you mentioned that men have actually, men as well as women have seen something in your work that they relate to. And I have to tell you, especially for me, I mean, I'll also be of a marginalized group myself. Yes. completely was like my mouth dropped open when I read sort of your correlation between like the the glass ceiling and the bottom rung on the ladder. Mm-hmm. And I thought about this whole idea of the goalposts being moved. It's like, you know, the glass ceiling is actually a myth. <laughs> the issue is right when I get to it, someone moves the bottom rung from the ladder <laughs> and I go down a notch. Yes. And that's sort of what I took. I was fascinated by this. So share a little bit about that. Yeah. And you're also bringing up a great point. Like we're talking about kind of gender in these broader terms, but you know, when you look at the intersectionality of identities, whether it be sexuality, race, gender, like all of these different things play out in different ways. And so I particularly say in the book too, like if you're a woman that's underrepresented from another aspect of your identity as well, then you're going to even need some of these supports and tools more Mm. is essentially what it is. And so for you, when you're talking about your experience, So what I've heard again and again is like the glass ceiling's broken. Look at these leaders who are African-American, who are women, who are in these executive roles. And so people then think that the issue's kind of resolved. Mm. But the reality is not only are those few and far between, we only have to look at the stats of, you know, top companies to know that, but we're seeing issues earlier on in the pipeline. And so the reality is what I was talking about when I was um, looking at the broken rung, that's actually something that McKinsey and Lean In published on in the last couple of years, Mm. is that women are actually getting stuck at that first kind of step to manager. So it's earlier than we think. And my research prior to that um, report coming out actually reinforced that it was that you know, there's this gap in the first 10 to 15 years for women. Mm. Um, Most corporate programs for women are too little, too late. Mm. 
when really women are lagging men in aspiration and confidence in job title and promotion from day one or day two or day three on the job. Mm -hmm. And so we have this glaring gap. And and the the analogy I use actually um, is that we keep on thinking about, if you think about people that are underrepresented, if you think about women, we keep on doing these programs later on in the pipeline, like let's say executive or senior manager level. And I'm like, that is the same as plugging the final fissure in a pipeline that has so many holes before, right? <laughs> right, right. So like, how are we doing these things earlier? And that's what really got me excited about really targeting those kind of earlier career years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say, I'm happy to report that a lot of the women who I am, who I've spoken to on the show, they are doing just that. They are doing things like beginning mentorship programs for girls in high school. Um, areas Amazing. like, yeah, it's really, really super to, to know that that's, you know, people are recognizing that it needs to happen earlier. Beginning like programs for girls who are interested in STEM when they're like in mm-hmm. elementary school, you know, really early. So girls know that, you know, they can code and program. So on one hand, you're right. That's an issue. And on the other hand, we do see at least some women getting in there and trying to make a difference because, you know, they saw a need and they went in and decided to to make that difference. So that's a good thing, at least. Amazing. Yeah. And I've done work with um, girls in high school as well for those kind of same reasons that we need to think about cultivating those mindsets and skill sets earlier mm-hmm. and not just telling girls you can be anything you want to be, like helping them actually think about like, <laughs> right. and here's the tools and the support systems you'll need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I did find is in the corporate landscape, when I looked at it, the majority of companies that were investing in women's programs were kind of later on and or like middle manager or coming to manager and above. But there was this gap in a lot of companies kind of in that early career stage yeah. when it's really essential. And so the book was really born from that is like, how do I provide people almost with a curriculum and toolkit that they can just run with without having to invest in a whole programmatic element? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's amazing because there are so many opportunities now for women that didn't exist before. So, you know, the talent is there. You'll hear companies sometimes, which is so funny, um, not funny, it's kind of pathetic in some ways. They, they will say things like, we really want to hire, you know, a, a black CEO woman, lesbian, but we can't find one. <laughs> I'm like, there's no, you're not looking because there's no way you can't <laughs> find like, you know, women who are brilliant and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and who are capable of that. So it's like a lot of brands are sort of using that excuse. And so I think it's good for people to do work like what you're doing because you go to organizations and you go, no, here's a whole realm of people yeah. who you're just not yeah. really tapped into. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Like, uh, so I do broader inclusion work with companies. So part of my work is is coaching and I do a lot of coaching programs for women, but then part of it's on strategic advisory retainer with companies where they're engaging me to think about how to be more inclusive or dynamic. Mm. And the number one thing, like I'd be so rich if I had a dollar for every time I heard, we want to hire a black CEO, we want to hire X, but we can't find them. And they, it's a supply issue. Right. (laughs) And so, and so I always am kind of like respectfully, let's look at your recruitment process. Right. Mm. So even things like the language you use in job descriptions, if you know that people who are in a minority or underrepresented position are less likely to apply for something, unless they tick all the boxes, how do you frame things as 
kind of nice to haves or preferred rather than required, Mm. right? How do you frame your language with a blend of kind of gender neutral um, language as well as like there's certain like agentic, more masculine words and communal, more more feminine words that that they've shown have an impact on who applies. Mm -hmm. And then even in outreach, like people will say, well, we're not getting anyone. And I'm like, well, what universities or schools are you going to and what is their diversity proportion? Because if they only have 10% Black individuals, then you might need to also think about outreach at other places. Right. And then in even in the interview process, like I've worked with people around interrupting bias, around using scorecards and metrics. So we don't just say this person isn't a good fit or this person is um, using a bias interrupter in interview processes. So there's lots of really, really cool things that you Mm. can do. And one of the things that I am really um, excited about and proud of is I'm actually now um, National Road Secretary for Bermuda. So I'm originally mm. from Bermuda. Oh, okay. And I run I run selection and outreach now for the Road Scholarship for Bermuda. And we saw historically that there was a kind of like you see a more homogeneous pool coming through. And it might be word of mouth. It might be certain, you know, established networks of people right. that know Road Scholars or come from these schools that have machines that produce Rhodes Scholars. Mm. And in the last few years, we've finally seen kind of the pendulum swing and our applicant pool be more reflective of the racial and gender diversity of our community. Yeah, and yeah. that to me, by implementing some of these tools, so I totally think it's possible. And to your point, we need to stop that narrative around like they don't exist because they do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of a strange position for a company to even take to even, you know, say something like that. I mean, you know, clearly some of our top universities, even if you look at HBCUs themselves, they are what we call Black Ivy League. So how are you not finding, you know, people who can run a company at those organizations? But again, I think there is change. I try not to be pessimistic. I, I, you know, change is not always fast. It doesn't happen when you want it. Uh, The world that I live in is more, there's more opportunities for me than my mother had. So I get it in that regard. But in many ways, we are still sort of stuck. And one of the situations now, and we don't have to have a political conversation about it, is, but it's sort of like the elephant in the room, is what's going on in Texas right now. And, you know, whatever side of that argument you're on, I find it just bizarre that in 2023, that politicians are interjecting themselves into a conversation about what a woman can do regarding her own health in any aspect so, you know, when you have that extreme, it makes me feel a little pessimistic about, well, how far can women really go when you're at the level where it's legislated that someone else can control your body? So it's a it's a weird dichotomy for women to exist, I think, in our society. What's your take on that? Ooh, uh, I know, yeah, I was a little deep, a, sorry. I get, no, 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 no. I just get emotional talking about it. Um, so I'm going to share something. When I got the Rhodes Scholarship, I was the second Rhodes Scholar ever to pursue women's studies. And a lot of people, this article came out at the time and said, like, while most Rhodes Scholars do law or medicine, like Christie's doing this. And it was always, it was questioned. It was like, what are you going to do with this degree? Mm. Why are you wasting the Rhodes Scholarship on this degree? And a lot of people kind of in my generation were like, this is a battleground that was won in our mother's generation, like in the Mm sixties, like we have everything. Why is this still kind of an issue? And 
I almost had to justify it. And it was always questioned. Yeah. And unfortunately, because of what's been happening in the political landscape in the U.S., and globally, we've seen it around diversity, um, you know, whether you're looking at what what the legislation that just um, the arguments in uh, India around gay marriage, whether you're looking at Aboriginal representation in Australia, there's mm-hmm. like this, mo- there's this movement against what I would call inclusive policies. And the only silver lining is there is a deep, deep recognition that these are no longer sidelined issues. These are mainstream issues. Yeah. And so the, the working in this space does not need to be justified anymore. However, if you look at book banning, affirmative action, abortion rights, there's a lot of stuff that is very deeply personal for individuals and going to impact their day-to-day existence. Mm-hmm. And so the one thing that I would say kind of to to companies too, and leaders in companies is if legislation is one way in where you are, companies then need to take more responsibility to how do I support my employees and their health and psychological well-being right. and their and their overall physical health, which which this is, in ways that I may not have had to before because the state was more supportive in a certain way. So I mm-hmm. think in some ways it's changing the dynamic of the discussion for companies and organizations and what it looks like to support women given the current state of affairs, which is frankly pretty depressing. Yeah, it's pretty, it definitely is very depressing. My mother was born in 1949 and she and I have conversations like this often where, as you mentioned, you know, she's like, didn't we already go through this? I mean, I thought we already And then for my grandfather who passed away last year at the age of 92, I thought it was sad that for him, at the end of his life, he began to see such racial unrest after having gone through, I mean, a man being born in 1929, what that must have been like, getting through that, then getting through the 60s, civil rights movement, then on his deathbed, he sees the rise of all that crazy again. So it's exhausting. I know the word patriarchy is thrown around a lot, and it's not necessarily derogatory. It's what it is. It's kind of what has dictated uh, the lives of marginalized groups, which include women, which include yeah. you know uh, people of color, gay. I would just say anybody who's not like a white Christian straight man, <laughs> right? I mean, that's pretty much what that would be. Anyone who's not that, that would be seemingly, I guess, anti-patriarchy in a way in some cases. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things in the U.S. that are just concerning now, if you look at like maternal death rates and particularly amongst the African-American population, it's appalling. And if you look at even the studies that came out this summer around like fit women that were track stars, right. Mm. And the implication that they had, if you look at um, hate crimes um, and, and, and that now, particularly in the U S in terms of um, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, like there's, there's rising numbers and, the division is very, very scary. And I would say that like now more than ever, we need to come together to really think about like, what does an inclusive society look like? Mm-hmm. But it, but the discussion seems to be harder to harder to have in a lot yeah. of ways. And, and I will say that like I, earlier on in my career, I had a lot of you know clients saying like, what, let, can you come in and make the business case for DEI? And I just felt like, exhausting to have to go back to that. Yeah. And then the the only positive there was around George Floyd and the, and the rising of Black Lives Matter was um, 
that my phone started ringing and I was almost angry though, because like people suddenly wanted to focus on it. Mm. And I was like, it took this, yeah. it took us getting to here to focus on this. Like why? Yeah. But then I realized that that was an opportunity to kind of bring this into the mainstream discussions of culture and leadership and organizations. But now we're seeing kind of the pendulum swing again with less investment um, and, mm. and less focus in a time where it's really, really critical. Yeah, so almost like they, it's almost like there was like a, a uh, an instinctive response to the situation at first, just yeah. to kind of check the box of like, you know, we're doing something right, and then now that the headlines are kind of over and it subsided, the the brands are sort of, and organizations are sort of subsiding their their efforts as well. And, yeah, and, and I think yeah. that there's also a broader discussion, like with legislative changes around affirmative action. What does that mean for companies and how will their policies look one way or another and what mm -hmm. constitute that or not? But the, but the reality is we have deep, deep legacies of socioeconomic um, inequities, of like health inequities that go back centuries, you know, for multiple different reasons. And yeah. there's many different things that needs to be hit on an individual level. That's why I write books for individuals on organizational levels. And that's why I do the advisory work, but then also on the policy level. And so when I get down about it, I just think about like, well, what is my kind of realm of influence and where I can make the most impact right now mm -hmm. for individuals that are really, really hungering for the support? Yeah. You know, what I find to be really helpful when I have to sort of educate, if you will, a, the younger generation, Gen Z specifically. And and for me, I guess a few years back was more like when I had to deal with, uh, or not deal with, but speak to millennials if I had hired them in like um, a junior role as a copywriter and I was their manager. I'd have conversations about the recent history of a lot of the oppression that we are still combating. One of them, of course, I was so shocked when I realized I had a woman financial executive on my show once and she was telling me about how in the 1970s, Still, uh, at that point, I think that was just when I think 1976 is like when women were able to get their own credit card or something yeah. like really bizarre, like women up till that point would not be able to get a credit card without a husband present or a husband's authorization. Like That's like the 1970s, which is I was born in the 70s, right? That's like my generation of crazy misogyny against women that it's in real time, really close to our current history. So I, I think that helps, you know, letting people understand the proximity on the timeline and we're not too far away from this stuff. No, no, it's, it's also not just past. There's so many things that are happening in the present. And you can also see like with the Me Too movement and there was that law in New York that just ended, I think it was like the end of November that yeah, allowed yeah. people to come out I'm, I'm forgetting the, the name of it, but allowed people yes. to come out years later mm -hmm. um, who were sexual abuse victims. And, and it's just been, I mean, interesting to see, like, this is the state of play now, still in so many industries. It's not like sometimes we talk about race equity or gender equity, like issues of the past. And if anything, we've seen in the last few years that this is, these are issues now. Yeah. Yeah, still going, still going forward. Um, I find it to be sad too that we have wasted, we have lost so much opportunity for brilliance and growth as a nation because not everyone has had a seat at the table. And I just find, you know, I find when I look at it, it's like, you know, we could be so much further ahead 
uh, maybe in the arts, the sciences, um, financial health, world economics, national economics. So many great ideas were never heard and did not get listened to or were not even welcomed into the conversation because they were there was not representation of all people there. So I find it sort of unfortunately it's 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 very uh, self-defeating as a nation to continue on in this way because I think we're losing out on some greatness because everyone's not not included. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I would just say the U.S. isn't alone in that. Mm. Um, the reality is some of my work focuses on affinity bias and m- all, everyone has affinity bias. We're more likely to gravitate towards people like us. And that mm. impacts our purchasing decisions, who we hear in the room, who we invite to sit at the table, who we promote. And so we've really got to be conscious of like that. And even now entering the um, holiday season, I don't know when this is coming out, but, um, but I've been thinking about, you know, how are we investing our money and purchasing power? Like, Mm. are we supporting black owned businesses? Are we supporting women entrepreneurs? There's so many things on an individual level that you can do as well in terms of like, like who are those underrepresented artists that you can even support? So I I completely agree. And in terms of um, organization, I always say like, instead of walking into room and looking at who's around the table, look at who's not around the table that Mm. should be and invite them to join. And just those simple flips of the script and mindsets really help. Yes. And your messages are universal. Again, as I mentioned, I got so much, I get so much out of what you say that really apply to me as a person also who checks a box, a couple boxes of other. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So thank you so much. Christy Hunter R. Scott, award-winning advisor and speaker, author of Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and Launch a Brilliant Career. Oh, what a great conversation. I thank you for being here today with us on Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.